0: My Govan and everyone this is the second installment that many of you have been waiting for of myself talking with Girl Next Gondor about Tolkien and his critics and in this particular video we're going to be focusing not so much on a broad array of critics but rather one critic in particular that being Michael Moorcock who was himself a sci-fi fantasy author who wrote a an essay let's say it's it's hard to classify it as an essay because it's so <laughs> rambling, but um the essay is entitled Epic Pooh, and specifically, there's two versions of this. There's an early version, and then he redid it later and expanded on it. We're actually looking at the later expanded version, uh, and I'm, I've got a link for that. So if you want to read it yourself, I'll have that in the description below. But the purport of the essay is to criticize the style Of Tolkien and other similar authors, whether it successfully does that, we will uh, let you decide at the end of this. Our opinion is decidedly no. Uh, With that said, uh, I'll just go ahead and get us rolling with Girl Next Gondor's first major comment because we're kind of going to be working through sequentially through the essay. And she actually had the first comment that she wanted to make. So you had a comment on the um, rhythm and such of some writings that Moorcock was describing. So can you get into that?
1: Yeah, I believe I can. So the essay starts out with Moorcock observing that essentially the tone of what he calls, quote, high fantasy uh, and by uh, not tone, so I need to be very specific with my terms here, in terms of literary criticism, because I think one of the things that he's banking on is the tendency of people to conflate prose style, tone, mood, and a number of other things. So he's identifying what he considers a sonic quality to the prose style of, again, what he distinguishes as high fantasy, what he means by that exactly. He kind of describes later on but the definition he he never really gives a formal definition and the implications that he's uh making do not necessarily hold up under scrutiny but all that aside he's focusing on the lulling more rhythmic tone that he identifies in high fantasy by which he seems to be referring to a lot of great classics that were written early to mid 20th century, usually by British intellectuals. And he gives a little, I believe this is his his own little satire or parody of it. He writes a few lines of verse that, Go something like up from the platform and onto the train, got Willer and Rollery, and Younger Rain, forgetful of sex and income tax, were Soren and Mamalek Akanax, and in their dreams, Dunsany's Lord mislaid the communication cord, which is a reference to Lord Dunsany, a very influential fantasy writer of the 19th century, someone that probably most likely influenced Tolkien to one degree or another. And what he's identifying here is he says, as a lulling lullaby mouth music frequently enjoyed not for its tensions but its lack of tensions he says it sounds like it's written on a train journey and you can feel like the rhythm of it now my suspicion is that this would be a quality that you would find in prose not because of any sort of intent to coddle the reader or because of any laxity on the part of the author but i think there might even be a little bit of an influence from the classical education in Greek that a lot of, particularly British and English people, but basically many Europeans and a lot of the American elites would have received around that time period, talk in the 18th, 19th century. Um, there's this, the Homeric epic, the, uh, the Homeric epic meter, the meter in which Homer, for instance, was written. It, or uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad were written. It's called dactylic hexameter. It's not something that we're familiar with in English where we tend much more to the iambic pattern of speech, but it's Greek, apparently. I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is what I know of Greek. Tends to enjoy that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da kind of rhythm. That's how most of the epic poems of ancient Greek were written was in that. So knowing that Tolkien was a classicist and a linguist and that he had a particular fondness of Greek, which he was reading and writing in very early age when his mother was still alive, she was one of the ones who introduced him to classical languages. Can we maybe say that this quality has more to do with the fact that all of these educated british gentlemen were probably reading the heck out of a lot of dactylic hexameter and were just conditioned to include more of those longer complicated meters and metrical feet in their prose in their english prose even than uh than we are today but that that is it's speculation on my point but it is to it goes to show that he's already right off the bat he's making a claim He's saying, basically, I think that it's written this way because it's trying to console and lull and distract the reader into feeling very sleepy and comfortable. And it's like, well, that's one explanation. Another very readily apparent <laughs> explanation, one that I think has more, uh, you could give more credence to is the idea that maybe it's just as a result of the kinds of prose and poetry that these kind kinds of people would have been exposed to these kinds of authors would have been exposed to so that's my first point and it's a little bit of a digression but it just it stuck out to me I was like no hold on a second those are all dactyls it's natural that they'd be all writing in dactyls has nothing to do with trains you silly man
0: (laughs) (laughs) right well and you know this is a really good first point too because it kind of sets up a lot of what we're going to see later on which is He'll make a claim, and sometimes he doesn't even make a really solid claim. He just kind of puts something out there and kind of leaves it to you to infer what the criticism is. But even when he makes a claim, he very rarely gives any solid evidence for it. And so it's like, given that you know you admit you're speculating on the reason why there's so much dactylic meter in a lot of this prose, he's also speculating as to the reason. Like, yeah. he doesn't know what's in tolkien's mind or any of these other author's minds, and furthermore, even if it was written for kind of that purpose isn't almost any meter kind of the same way i mean the the way we naturally speak in English tends to be you know iambic the but but um but you know any kind of rhythm is lulling, and that's just that's the nature of rhythm that's you know it's like white noise it it always has kind of the same effect it makes you tend to just fall into it and become a little more passive um
1: and as a writer you can deploy that you can invert the expected rhythm to create a more of a sense of tension or you can continue it on to create more potentially a calming effect but also just more fluidity between thoughts you can kind of lead people along with your rhythm if you're clever a lot of this of course happening subconsciously right so so there's nothing but yeah like you said there's nothing inherently wrong with making use of long chains of rising rhythms and to assume that you know why the authors do that and why subconsciously they're drawn to that which you identify as you perceive as a lullaby effect it's like that that that's just like your opinion man <laughs> like
0: <laughs> yeah
1: you have cr- no evidence for that you're just assuming that we're going to believe you because you stated it
0: yeah uh and i think related to this is actually the next point that we both kind of touch on in in our notes was where he actually starts quoting winnie the pooh yes um, and, and this is where the the title of the essay comes from of course is the idea of It's just like Winnie the Pooh is, according to Moorcock, supposed to like coddle you and make you feel, you know, at home safe and, you know, like nothing is there to worry about. And he then quotes this paragraph basically from Winnie the Pooh. And of course, it does read very saccharine and, you know, just like there's no significant complexity to it at all. And his implication is that Tolkien is like this, and he pulls this fast one because he says, on the one hand, he gives this Winnie the Pooh quotation, and then he goes and he quotes a part of the um, Lord of the Rings, which is very early on. And I forget, is this the part where he actually quotes the whole thing about giants and other portents were forgotten for more important matters?
1: I Working Yeah, later. I, I have it up. He gives the a quote from Winnie the Pooh that's about little twinkling or tinkling and twinkling, I suppose, stream and and the woods and all of that. And it's very soothing, um, which I'll get into. And then he says that this is the predominant tone of the Lord of the Rings and Watership Down. And he lists the wind and the willows. Uh, and then he goes on to quote: "One summer's evening, an astonishing piece of news reached the Ivy Bush and Green Dragon. Giants and other portents on the borders of the Shire were forgotten for more important matters." Yes, it's a quote from Yeah, *The Fellowship of the Ring*. Um, that would chapter be two, Chapter probably.
0: Two,
1: probably. Um, yeah, because we're talking portents, so we're past the birthday party. We're now into right trouble rearing its head.
0: So the the funny thing about this is he he straight up admits okay, a lot of people have said it's not fair to use these early parts of the book. You need to look at you know, other parts of the book for a different tone and style and whatnot, because after all, we are still in the Shire. Um, and so he says, I open the page randomly, and one may
1: wonder about how,
0: just how random this is. And he finds the passage where Gandalf is telling Pippin about the history of the Palantiri, the seeing stones. And he quotes the passage, and he says well here it is again so it's not just the first part of the book it's it's everywhere it's like okay you picked literally two paragraphs out of a 1000 plus page novel <laughs> um and you didn't bother to look at any say battle scenes you didn't you know bother to look at any real dialogue i mean so i mean on on just the face of it he's picking two things which there's no reason to believe a representative samples uh but the other thing that I find ridiculous about this whole thing and, and this one of the other comments he makes is that the um <laughs> this this comment infuriated me he He says that the humor is often unconscious because tolkien how does he say it let me let me find it in my notes. He says something about tolkien's he says tolkien takes words seriously but without pleasure. Which, as a man who literally invented the Elvish languages for the purpose of his own pleasure, (laughs) phonetically speaking, that is an absurd thing to say. It really is. Maybe Moorcock didn't know that, but nevertheless, that's him making completely unwarranted assumptions again. So anyway, he says this, that it's unconscious humor, and quotes that line about, The giants and other portents and it's like how can you think that that's unconscious humor that is i mean you have to wonder if moorcock is one of these people who never grew up enough to understand sarcasm that's i mean tolkien is literally almost beating us over the head with the satire in that line hobbits are so concerned with their parochial affairs that giants and other portents are totally unimportant compared to the sale of bag end one piece of property in Hobbiton. That is so far from unconscious uh, humor that I I don't know how he even comes up with that line. But the other comparison was with uh, Gandalf explaining the history of the Seeing Stones to Pippin. The context of that whole thing is Pippin is only half awake to begin with, and he's catching bits and pieces of what Gandalf is saying and then passes back into sleep writing on shadow facts so it's like of course it's going to sound like that we're getting this kind of from pippin's perspective and he's literally getting the information in a state in which he is falling asleep so why would we expect it to be particularly filled with tensions and all these other things so i mean just like the context of it all makes no sense his claim that the unconscious humor that makes no sense So in in light of all that, his choices don't even make sense on multiple levels. Uh, Did you have anything you wanted to add specifically on the whole Winnie the Pooh versus two random, if they're random, passages?
1: Um, Yeah, only that it's, let's assume that they are random. Uh, It's quite disingenuous, even with Winnie the Pooh, because what he's quoting from is the opening of a Pooh story. Where everything starts out peaceful, as the beginning of stories, you know, tends to do. It's like why they're the beginning, and then something happens to change that and to break the status quo. So you do need to do some work in the beginning to set a sense of some Calm, kind of a status peace. quo. Yeah, and you know, in, in a children's story like Winnie the Pooh purportedly is, although I would argue that it's actually a lot of it is more for the adults. I'm a I'm a big Pooh fan, in my in my aging aging years uh
0: yeah much of the humor of winnie the pooh is lost on anybody under the age of about 12
1: exactly or apparently on michael moorcock who thinks that tolkien is not being funny when he's describing like that's the other thing is people do assume and i've did a whole video on this and got some flack for it people assume that the shire is meant for tolkien to represent this perfect idyllic paradise that's just he loves it so much and that's why he describes it with such affection. Well, he describes it with affection, but he's, if you're open to the idea that he may not be always spelling everything out to the reader, he's also quite snarky at times about the small-mindedness of the hobbits, the gossip that's going on as you pointed out that passage where they're discussing potentially seeing giants and monsters and portents and we know that in a few more paragraphs he's going to drop the name of Mordor and how even the hobbits are kind of shaken up by that but but no they're all in the in talking and debating about Frodo and his family history and whether he's going to sell bag end and all of that. So it's it's clearly, I would say, anyone who's reading that with at least a little bit of a critical consciousness of, okay, you know, let's not take everything the author says at exactly, literally face value would understand that there's some sly humor here, but apparently not. Apparently, this is representative of the tone of the Lord of the Rings all the way through, and the other option that he gives us to judge this for ourselves, as you point out, is one where, again, he could, you could quite easily argue that in a scene where someone is on a horse galloping over a long stretch of land with someone a lovely, knowledgeable wizard, probably a very soothing voice going on and on about history. And you're a very tired little hobbit. Maybe that's the effect that he's that Tolkien's actually going for there. Maybe he's a terrible prose stylist or maybe he's making these choices somewhat intentionally. So yeah, just, just very, very, very vexing. But yes, it, it amounts to a... A restatement of your own points i believe on that point
0: yeah um and then the next thing i wanted to discuss was where he says that tolkien occasionally rises above this sort of prose but then ruins it with the intrusion of ghastly verse yes did you have have anything before that
1: no that's that's pretty much immediately he goes from citing Gandalf talking to Pippin to saying yeah. that, well, sometimes he does better than that, which, of course, he doesn't bother to quote the points where he thinks Tolkien may be rising above this sort of thing. Right. We still haven't, he still, of course, hasn't identified what this sort of thing is. He's just given us examples and made some snide comments. He's never come out and said, what what is it specifically, sir, that you're objecting to here? Is it the tone? Is it the subject matter? Is it the literal sonic qualities and rhythms of the prose itself like what is it he just says oh it's this sort of thing all right. right and then he says that he ruins every time that Tolkien does rise above it he ruins it with ghastly verse which is that is an opinion you can not enjoy Tolkien's poetic efforts that's he's certainly not for everyone I think he's probably a stronger prose writer than a than a poet but for heaven's sakes that if that's your argument then make that argument don't don't drop it as if you've proved something and then walk away in the opposite direction.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and the thing to me, like the the verse styles in The Lord of the Rings by itself are so varied That's the other thing. That you can, like there's some poetry in The Lord of the Rings that I like and then there's some that I don't like as much. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: I like the Arendelle was a Mariner poem. I really like the feel of it, the way he plays with, you know, the the assonance and the alliteration and all those things but then there's the the poem where aragorn legolas and Gimli send boromir over the waterfall i'm not as big of a fan of that one artistically i mean like as a part of the story it's very powerful and very moving but artistically i don't appreciate it as much so it's like which ghastly verse i mean like there's a bajillion poems in this story they can't all be bad I mean, really? Yeah.
1: So because we, we go... I mean, he goes.
0: He goes old English. He goes iambic tetrameter. He goes. Yep. I mean, just everything. He covers the entire scope, pretty much, of what you could do with poetry in an English-speaking novel. So it, it's a well, ridiculous and, thing to say.
1: And not even you know, if the English poetry doesn't float your boat, he also gives you examples of Sindarin and Quenya. He we have actual elf Latin extempore. Laments from Galadriel, and then we have very lowbrow Hobbit humor poems from Sam, <laughs> right? And and as you said, everything in between, things that are drawing from the Anglo-Saxon tradition. A lament for Boromir feels very much like a sort of an f- effort to translate a kind of overly sophisticated Gondorian poetic tradition into an English, in English mode. It's yeah. It, First of all, if you're going to say his verse is ghastly, which, again, some of some of his poems, I think, are more solid than others, point out which ones and what about them is ghastly. And then secondly, it's, it's very difficult to say that all of the verse is ghastly because there's so many different modes of it, and they're all there really to serve the story and to exemplify the cultures of the people who are speaking them.
0: Right. And I mean, if you're going to say that the, like you said, the lowbrow Hobbit poetry is ghastly because it's lowbrow, that's, that's the, the point. point. <laughs> I mean, like, again, in service to the story, that's kind of where we're going with this. Um, and then let's see, what did I have next in here? My next thing was where he starts talking about Chesterton and other Christian yep. writers. So did you have anything in between those two? or? No. Okay, yeah, so that's what next.
1: I have the essay in front of me and I've been following along. We really are that jumping from one sentence to a ne- the next here. It's Well,
0: the early part is very thick.
1: It's very thick. And the the logical leaps need to all kind of be identified and called out for what they are.
0: Yeah, so um so next he gets into comparing Tolkien with other writers and he compares him to G.K. Chesterton, who was like Tolkien a Catholic and he mentions other Christian writers and says that he and these other writers see the honest artisans as the bulwark against chaos and that these honest artisans are idealized because the last to complain against the status quo. They represent good common sense as opposed to perverted intellectualism. Now, some of this is paraphrased. I'm not directly quoting. These are just my notes. Mm. Uh, But then, then he turns around and says that the Tory views of the inklings, which... I don't know that all the inklings were Tories, but let's assume for sake of argument that they were,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, quote, doesn't ask any questions of white men in gray clothing who somehow have a handle on what's best for us, unquote. <laughs> now, I find this very striking because on the one hand, it's the honest artisans who are the bulwarks against chaos and mm. and even opposed to perverted intellectualism, but also We aren't supposed to ask any questions of white men in gray clothing who know what's best for us. Is it just me or has Michael Moorcock set up two different things that are completely contradictory to each other and made it seem like they're the same?
1: Yeah. Yes, it's...
0: Yeah. Taking my head here. Let's not beat around the bush because, I mean... Tolkien certainly had a very strong conservative streak to him. And I don't mean conservative as in the conservative party. I mean, he very much favored conservative things like conserving nature and conserving old ways of life and, you know, conservative in the most literal sense. Mm -hmm. And that's why he favors, you know, honest artisans and, you know, all these other things. These all make honest livings in their own ways and, you know, all this other stuff. So certainly there is an element of that in Tolkien, but if you want to start claiming and he never says this directly about Tolkien and this is another of course area where the point is like you say so often he says something and he leaves it to you to make these connections that aren't really there but that he wants you to make without him stating it you can't possibly say that about Tolkien because of Saruman. Well that, One example by itself blows the whole white people in gray clothing out of the water. And I mean, he's almost literally a white person in gray clothing. He's just actually a shade lighter than gray. It's Saruman the White. He's literally like the intellectual, you know, par excellence in Middle Earth. And he's a bad guy. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm one of the things that I really enjoy about The Lord of the Rings is that Tolkien certainly has and acknowledges his preferences and his opinions, but he's also very willing and even goes out of his way to introduce counter examples of his own tendencies, if you will. So we have the idea he very much values noble, wise men who are descended from a long line of kings and that they have charisma and leadership and all of that. And he- he likes those characters. But he also likes to take those characters and make them not have all the answers or straight out be antagonistic. So we have, of course, Boromir, who's a young noble and a heroic warrior and has many, to Tolkien, admirable traits, very heroic traits. And he, of course, succumbs to the lure of the ring. Then we have Boromir's father Denethor who is like the most similar person to Aragorn probably in looks and in lineage and in just the acuity of his mind and in his leadership and charisma that we have in Middle-earth. He's they they point this out several times in the appendices and in the actual book itself that he reminds Pippin a lot of Aragorn. He's supposed to be this very you know the the type that Tolkien likes. And Tolkien takes him and he says, yeah, but he's not, he's not all with it. He has one fatal problem and that's his pride and his belief that he does know best and that nothing that, you know, that he's seen all, he's seen all ends and he knows how everything is going to go and he's going to make his choices accordingly to preserve his own sort of ambition and sense of power and control. So goes out of his way to invert that trope in story and show us that, yes, these, you know, our leaders can go wrong. Even the best leaders can go wrong. Even leaders I would probably really like or be drawn to can go really, really wrong. And so, as you say, we have Saruman, we have um, Denethor, and then we have Boromir kind of being a variation on that theme. Saruman's whole thing is that I know what's best for you. Sauron himself was originally an I know what's best for you kind of a guy. And then the actual good characters, Aragorn, Gandalf, even Theoden to an extent, the legitimate leaders are the ones who say, I don't know what's going to happen. All I I can do is do my best and let the, again, the hobbits, the humble people, let them make as much of their own decisions as they can and hope that they're going to be the ones to turn this thing around. Because all I can do is just be like, yeah, don't park your boat there. It's a bad idea. And (laughs) I, I I hope we don't all get wiped out by Sauron.
0: Yeah, well, and even with The Hobbits, you've got contrasts within the same culture because you've got Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin on the one hand, but then you also have Lobelia Sackville-Baggins and Ted Sandyman who are, you know, Lobelia Sackville-Baggins obviously kind of redeems herself at the end of the story. uh, But Ted Sandyman ends up being one of the most petty, you know, ugly characters. And it's, you know, he's a miller. He's an honest artisan, you might say, although there is a apparently... I'm not as familiar with this, but I've I've heard it pointed out, I think, by Corey Olson, that there's like a really rich literary tradition of the Miller being like a corrupt individual. So Tolkien's probably drawing on that. But nevertheless, I mean, like mm-hmm. being a Miller is honest work. I mean, it's not a thing that's just easy to do. It, but yet Tandy's, Ted Sandyman ends up being this really nasty, petty character who sides with Saruman at the end. It's just... Yeah. So even even within his own constructs like you say he's got contrasting you know parties on both sides within every category every level however you want to look at it. So again that's just another one of those things where Moorcock tries to make you think that you know he's made a point when really if you actually look at the story at all it's like which book did you read pal? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and of course this is in the context of he is just lumped Tolkien in with chesterton other writers like that which i can imagine some of the writers he's talking about they all i believe have different very different tones and subject matters and tendencies and themes that they pick up on and then of course with the inklings who did have some i guess intellectual sympathies but again you're looking at tolkien lewis and charles williams those are the the kind of core three they all wrote very different Books and
0: very, and very different.
1: In fact, frequently argued quite passionately about their aesthetic and philosophical differences. So to say that writers like this write this way, when even a cursory examination—because again, I'm no expert—but a cursory examination <laughs> suggests that they are more different in some ways than they are alike. It's again, very. it's it's very much uh, what I what I was saying as i was reading through this was this is like an argument by proximity you're trying to put two claims together that sound as if they confirm each other but you're actually just putting the ideas next to each other and hoping that we will associate some sort of causal connection between them when you in fact haven't made any because you know that there is in fact no causal connection you can make but that you know perhaps is uncharitable of me uh (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, he's hoping that we will do the work of saying, ah, I see you've proven that. And in fact, he's really done right. nothing of the kind.
0: <laughs> Not even close. Um, let's see, my next one is, he talks about moderation, ruining Tolkien as a romance, let alone as an epic. The Shire is safe, lands, wild lands outside are dangerous, experience of life itself is dangerous. Um, do you have anything that comes before that point in the essay?
1: Um, let me see. Again, there's a couple of paragraphs where, you know, he starts his next paragraph by saying, I suppose I respond so antipathetically to Lewis and Tolkien. I was like, wait a second. This is the first time we've mentioned Lewis by name.
0: (laughs) Who's a very different author. (laughs)
1: Who's a very different author, who is famous actually for arguing with Tolkien. Like I said, they would go on and on about it. Um, And then he talks a little bit about other novelists in the post-war period but again there's no he's putting that idea out there but there's no way to connect it to specifically lord of the rings and then yes what he goes on to is moderation was the rule the little hills and woods of that surrey of the mind the shire are safe but the wild landscapes everywhere beyond the shire are dangerous well we know that oh boy there's just so much to unpack with that the whole point of lord of the rings specifically that first half book one of fellowship of the ring which is the one that supposedly moorcock has the greatest distaste for just from a aesthetic standpoint Yeah. yeah That's The whole point of that book is the hobbits think they are safe. They think the Shire is safe. They think nothing bad can ever happen in the Shire and very, very quickly they are proven wrong. The actual Nazgul, the ringwraiths, the Sauron's most feared and powerful servants that even the hobbits vaguely have some inkling that, oh yeah, those guys are bad news show up in the Shire, start asking questions of those honest artisans and are tracking Frodo down and paying off spies in all their cozy little inns. So it's very much the story of the hobbits setting out thinking, well, this is, you know, I guess we can't stay in Hobbiton, but we're at least we're in the Shire and nothing, nothing bad's going to happen today, guys. And they're wandering <laughs> down the road and there's there's Nazgul and there's elves and there's Tom Bombadil just out of kind of nowhere. <laughs> They're walking through the woods and they find Tom Bombadil and they're like, how long have you been here? And he's like, oh, you know, pretty much forever. And they're like, what are you? He's like, I don't really know. Not important. (laughs) (laughs) Ring-a-ding-a-dillo. It's like the whole point of that book is things are a lot stranger and weirder and way more dangerous in the Shire than everyone, especially Frodo, could have ever conceived. And then they make it to Rivendell thinking, okay, well, you know, we've made it here The the clever men and the white men in gray coats, the lovely elves with their knowledge and their wisdom, who are really the ones who should be in charge of all this. Surely they will tell us what to do and we can just do that and we'll be great, you know, and no, as it turns out, in Rivendell, they find that the... The clever men in their gray coats who are supposed to know everything are standing there with their hands out, like, I don't know. What do you want to do with it? Well, we could give it to kirda Now we can't give it to Kirita. Well, we could give it to that Tom Bombadil guy. Now I don't trust that Bombadil guy. I don't understand him at all. It's like, you guys are supposed to be the ones who know what's going on. And you're telling me that I have to go to Mordor because I'm the only one who can save the world and I don't even know which direction Mordor's in? <laughs> Like the whole fellowship of the ring is taking that trope of, Oh yes, you have a idyllic little countryside and just subverting it mercilessly.
0: Yeah. Well and you know, even before we get to Rivendell, we have Gildor telling Frodo, yeah. like, I'm not offering you advice, dude. That's dangerous stuff. <laughs> and and he also straight up tells Frodo. It's not your own shire. In response to, I never expected to find danger in my own shire. Right. But it's not your own shire; it never has been. You're just like a passing, transient thing in this part of the world. Um, but the other thing too is that's kind of the point of, like you said, the whole that whole series is it gets stranger, and you start to realize there's more danger and bizarreness in this world. And we get this kind of echoed again later, where several of the Dunedine meet up with Aragorn in Rohan Mm -hmm. and a conversation starts up where one of them, Halbarad, makes the point that, you know, these hobbits are really simple folk, but we love them nonetheless. And at another, I'm trying to remember, is it Aragorn in the Council of Elrond who, I can't remember who says it exactly where, but somebody makes the comment like if you're going to protect simple people from outside dangers, simple they will be. And that's one of the things that we see in the character arcs of the Hobbits is they become less simple and less safe. But that's kind of what their growth is about. It's like you have Mm -hmm. to encounter things outside your comfort zone and realize that it's not just this nice little countryside where everything's perfectly happy and you just get to live your life. I mean, there are bigger and badder things out in the world, and sometimes you have to face up to those things. And that's kind of the point of their story is – they have to grow up and you know leave that that nursery room type safety and become mature adults capable of taking significant action in a dangerous world
1: and this is all to say nothing of you know I, i'm imagining we'll get there pretty soon the end of the book where they come home to what they still believe in their hearts is somehow safer than the world outside and they find oh no saruman is here just like doing stuff and killing and imprisoning people and all of our friends have just kind of let this happen because oops i guess we were never really as safe and as virtuous as even we thought we were so it yeah, and, and definitely this comes up
0: later and it's going to be a big one
1: <laughs> yeah it's like so you know even even the hobbits in the very final chapters of this book tolkien is Saying, like, now, you know, don't think that they're safe now. Don't think that they can just have this little adventure and they've grown as people and they've saved the world, and okay, so like we're safe now, we're good, we're returning back to safety. He sets you up to believe that, and then he's like, Nope.
0: Yeah. Which is interesting because Michael Moorcock apparently draws the exact opposite conclusion. Yeah, apparently
1: he he missed that part.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get there. (laughs) We will. (laughs) Um So and and then he has this line. Uh, and I'm just going to throw this one out there. If the Shire is a suburban garden, Sauron and his henchmen are the mob. And this, again, this is one of those things where one of the themes that comes through if you read this whole thing is Moorcock has a lot against Tolkien on purely political grounds. We've already mm-hmm. seen that in the comment about the Toryism. We've seen it in the comment of you know about him favoring the artisans and all this. And here it is again in a, in a similar form. It's like, you know the the Shire is just like a middle class white suburban home, and then Sauron and his henchmen are the mob. As you know, one wonders if he wanted to put quote marks around that, almost as if he sympathized with the mob. Uh, but it's like the idea of just having this knee jerk conservative feeling of, you know, I have what I have because I work for it, and you can't have any, you you know, poor restless people out there. So don't come and get it that almost seems to be what he's accusing Tolkien of, but it's like, what, where did you pull that from anyway? <laughs> I mean, like the whole point of Frodo's journey is that he's leaving his stuff, mm-hmm. his very comfortable life, in order to save literally everybody. <laughs> literally everybody. It's like, I mean, sure, there's an element of that uh, very staid and comfortable Hobbit who doesn't want to get involved in adventures, and that's you know the Hobbit is all about kind of poking fun at that um but that's a part you know every every culture has its vices. the Hobbit culture is they're comfortable and they don't want to do anything mm-hmm. and the whole point is you can't just live in that way forever because things are going to happen, so this idea that it's just some kind of weird knee jerk reactionary outlook by Tolkien, which he seems to be implying by this line, which doesn't really have any coherent meaning, but that's like the only thing I can pull out of it. It's yeah. just I mean, and, and this is going to come up again. Again, you'll see in a lot of these criticisms, Moorcock is really angry about Tolkien's politics more than anything else.
1: And I would say even he's angry about what he perceives as Tolkien's politics. Right. I don't know that it's a, that he's really, you know, I would doubt I wouldn't blame him for this. I would doubt that he spent a lot of time really getting into depth, the deep waters of what Tolkien thought and the complexities of his opinions, because he wasn't there are some ways in which you can see very clear trends. But there are other ways in which he's typically he's very unexpected, even in the hints in that we get in the letters as to what his political leanings were and what his opinions were on on day-to-day affairs and the stuff that was happening during his lifetime so so I again I, I don't blame Moorcock for that necessarily I do think it's interesting that he's choosing so often to criticize Tolkien on things that number one he claims are in Lord of the Rings when the opposite is clearly is pretty clearly true very clearly um, and then number two that he's taking such umbrage with what he thinks are Tolkien's politics without ever spelling them out, and again, if he were to spell them out, I doubt very much that they would represent an accurate picture of, again, of Tolkien's politics, uh, much less any sort of generalization you could make about, you know, that sort of writer of the mid-19th to mid-20th century of a certain you know tendency and class and so forth i do find it funny this paragraph so he calls the shire a suburban garden when it's very clearly not at all suburban suburban. (laughs) it is rural (laughs) agrarian that's kind of the point um he talks about how for the hobbits good or people like the hobbits good taste is synonymous with restraint pastel colors murmured protests and i find this a hilarious example because of course the hobbits are known for liking garish colors. colors and overindulging in food and drink and merriment in just at every conceivable opportunity they're like
0: so much so that they have to be wheelbarrowed out of Bilbo's <laughs> the, party. I mean, that
1: they take their children from party to party just to let the kids eat free food because otherwise they'd go broke trying to keep up with the appetites of Hobbit children. It's a very grounded, yeah. very life-affirming culture where they're not about restraint; they're about seizing and enjoying everything they can to too the much. fullest. Yeah, over overindulging and overindulging in comfort and overindulging in smugness and and Tolkien celebrates the cool aspects of that, the fact that they just they're very rarely impressed by nobility, they are very pragmatic, it takes a lot to get them down, but on the other hand, you know, they can be kind of kind of soft in the middle in the <laughs> in the ethical sense. Very <laughs> very easy to just go along with what's happening um yeah so it's it's just it's kind of funny again to see the shire characterized as something that not only is like oh that's not really fair it's like it's aggressively not that if you read the book you would not be talking about it this or rather if you read the book without any preconceived notions which i think is really yeah probably what happened here
0: oh and here's i don't did you have anything like with before the the mention of is Sauron really as evil as we're told
1: (laughs) no let's go (laughs) straight to that
0: awesome uh he starts it with a reference to the the courageous characters are like retired colonels driven to write letters to the times which is again did you read this story (laughs) who is writing letters none of these people are sitting back on their bottoms you know proclaiming from their armchair you know, here's how I would run the world and blah, blah, blah. No, these, I mean, these people are all actually actively engaging in literally saving the world by risking their lives. What in the world is like a retired colonel writing letters to the times about that, but more to the point, And he goes on and he says, it's, we're not really sure if Sauron is really as evil as we're told. And then he, this is one of the most famous lines from this. He says, yes. after all, anyone who hates hobbits can't be all bad. And it's like – now, again, Michael Moorcock probably hates hobbits because he hates simple-minded, comfortable, placid characters. Yes. Because he thinks that those people ruin civilization. And he's right, which is why Tolkien remorselessly (laughs) makes fun of that precise characteristic about hobbits. Like if you read The Hobbit, literally Bilbo's entire character arc – is about becoming less comfortable, less stay-at-home, less passive, and learning to be adventurous and live outside of his comfort, comfortable little hobbit hole. That is literally his story arc. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much the same arc we get with Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin.
1: Taken much more seriously.
0: Right, with a lot less humor and a lot more serious stakes.
1: Yeah, turned up to 11. Yeah. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's a couple of things on this. We are not, so he says, we are not sure because Tolkien cannot really bring himself to get close to his trolls and their satanic leaders if Sauron and co. are quite as evil as we're told. Now, it's true that we don't ever see much of Sauron as a character in Lord of the Rings because, like, for literary reasons, you kind of need to keep your big bad off stage when he's that overwhelmingly powerful. Right. But we see a lot of Saruman, we see Grima, we see, we get to spend a lot of time actually hanging out with actual orcs and hearing them talk and hearing them argue and even there's times at which they appear a little bit sympathetic, we get the Nazgul quite up close and personal, admittedly Nazgul are just more of a monstrous thing than an actual character. Right, But Tolkien gives us plenty of dialogue and motivation and character growth and development even, usually negative development, of <laughs> all the other villainous and semi-villainous borderline ambiguous antagonistic characters that he includes. We know exactly what happens with Denethor. We know what goes down with Boromir, we get to see that at close quarters. Saruman goes from being this relatively noble figure to being just this shrieking clawing nasty petty vindictive just shrunken down shell of a person by the end and we get to see all that fairly closely as well
0: and we get to see the route he takes to get there which is basically he is like i said earlier kind of the intellectual par excellence of middle Mm -hmm. Earth, and then he goes the route, the route of i'm so smart i ought to be telling everybody else what to do so i'm going to feed them you know, he he gives this speech to Gandalf where he's like, this is the smart way to go. This is the practical way to go. If we do it the other way, we're going to lose. So even though this may look bad, we need to do it this way and it'll be for the ultimate good in the end. And that ultimate good, by the way, is us being in charge of everything. Yeah. (laughs) And from there, he devolves from wannabe mega tyrant to pettiest of petty tyrants.
1: Yes, yes. Tolkien shows and makes it apparent why the will to domination tends to be the kind of the key factor here why the will to dominate others for whatever reasons you could start out with according to tolkien very noble reasons wanting people's lives to be better that degrades your personality until what seemed plausible at first turns out to just be this loathsome repulsive it really is that bad it really is that evil I don't I don't want to spend time with orcs. I've I've seen them. I've read a few (laughs) chapters about them. And they don't seem to be very nice people. And I don't you know, I don't want to be associated with that kind of behavior. And moreover, I don't want to see any of that behavior in myself. And I can see now where because again, this is one of the things Tolkien shows you in the book, you need to be very careful because you it's not always clear from the beginning where someone is going to go you know where someone's going to end up something may seem like it's so sensible reasonable smart prudent wise course of action but depending on the motives it can end up in the same sort of appalling place that you would associate with just orcs basically
0: yeah well and as elrond tells us in i believe the council of elrond you know even sauron was not evil in the beginning
1: Right, and, so, and those of us who know the lore, like, kind of even know the fuller, it, expanded version of that.
0: Right, I mean, his road actually is a lot like Sauron. So, via yeah. you know, by by seeing how Sauron goes down that road, we actually kind of have a pretty good idea of how exactly Sauron went down that road. It's like, I know how to make things better for everybody. Why won't they listen to me, stupid people? I'll just get rid of them. Yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of what it comes down to. It really is. Um i think i had another thought on that
1: it's interesting that moorcock is kind of aligning himself with that maybe not realizing
0: oh i remember what i was going to say you you, when you quoted the thing in full you reminded me of a of a word that i did not include in my notes and that was proles Mm. which again politically a very substantial significant term and again we can see moorcock's Real objection here popping through he's like he's he's assuming that Tolkien is against all these people because they're just the proletariat. It's like have you <laughs> have you read any Tolkien besides what you imagined well, in your
1: head <laughs> it's It's almost as if people told him that lord of somebody told him this, of course, that in their opinion, Lord of the Rings was an anti whatever probably, given the time period and the criticisms he's making, probably something that it was anti-socialist. Right. Um, for a very, again, a very narrow definition of what that person saw in the book. And Tolkien himself would have said, this, we've beaten this into the ground. I know you and I have both probably mentioned this at several points in our lives. Applicability. The Lord of the Rings is not an allegory. It it has applicability to almost any situation you could think of. And so, of course, if you look at things like you could look at take any political movement, any controversial act or item or anything of basically the last probably 500 years, and you could draw parallels and apply certain themes and lessons and characters, onto that from the Lord of the Rings, that's because it's a good book that has fairly broadly applicable applicable themes. Right. Not that it was written specifically in opposition to a specific iteration of a specific political philosophy of the, you know, the 1950s, let's say. So yeah. and it's like someone told Moorcock that that's what the book was about. So then he read the book and that was all he could see in it. <laughs> Instead of saying, well, I don't know, let's actually read this book and try and figure out what is trying to be communicated in it.
0: Yeah, and in fairness to Moorcock, it should be noted that Tolkien was a devout Catholic, and as a devout Catholic, almost certainly would have been opposed to communism. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, his writing is going to reflect that to some extent, but that doesn't mean every villain in his story is – the communist proletariat yeah (laughs) that's that's an oversimplification by a mile Uh, and especially because we have examples like saruman who is clearly not the proletariat and is Mm -hmm. clearly the overweening intellectual who wants to be a tyrant yes yeah
1: so yeah tolkien was opposed to communism tolkien was opposed to a lot of things most things i think in fact he was critical of even the things that you would suspect that he would be right more in favor of yeah oh that was that was maybe a sentence and a half and i think it sparked like 10 minutes of ranting
0: yeah well it's okay it, we're about it we're was about worth to it. To, it we're about to it. get to the most ridiculous and, and we 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 presage this a little bit before um he mentions that tolkien goes against the grain of his subject matter and forces on us a happy ending as a matter of policy and he oh, boy here refers to of course the fairy his essay on fairy stories where he talks about the consolation of the happy ending and why that's so important and in this context he also implies that the lord of the rings Kind of ignores death. And, and both of these statements are just, they're so ludicrous. It, it's ridiculous. It, just to kill the death one right off the bat, we of course right. see Boromir die right up front. You know, we literally see Aragorn holding him in his arms when he dies. And mm-hmm. we see Benathor commit suicide in front of our eyes. We see Theoden die, who is a much more sympathetic character you know because he's you know not redeeming himself even like Boromir he's just a straight up good guy and then he dies on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So it's not like the stories are unacquainted with death. But this idea that Tolkien forces on us a, a happy ending, well yes and no. Like the the whole idea here is that the overall arc of history turns out well because the ring is destroyed, but who in the story gets a personally happy ending? Not Frodo. No. Frodo is a broken person by the end of the story. And that's why he leaves Middle Earth. And, you know, for anybody out there who has this notion, let me disabuse you of it now. Frodo's not going to heaven when he sails across the nope. ocean. That's not what's going on. He is seeking healing in the Undying Lands before he does inevitably die because he is wounded and cannot find rest in middle earth he must leave for his own good so this idea that frodo has this happy ending it's like yes there are a lot of happy endings aragorn gets the girl sam gets the girl you know mary and pippin seem pretty much happy Gimli and legolas do cool stuff after the fact but like frodo who has been the protagonist since you know practically the first chapter is not given a happy ending and neither is Boromir and neither is Theoden. And yeah, I mean, like some of our, you know, very good friends in the story die. And even though Frodo doesn't die on the page, he's not happy by any stretch.
1: Yeah. And um, I mean, I paused when I saw the Lord of the Rings ignores death and was like, Aren't there multiple letters in which Tolkien says, Well, I mean, I guess if you had to say there's a moral or a theme or an underlying message about Lord of the Rings, it's, it's a novel about death. <laughs> like, all like an, and, and, and ending. Machine. And yeah, and yeah, he, he frequently references that death and the human attitude toward death and all that that implies the, the good parts of it, the bad parts of it, the horror of it. Right. That's what the book is concerned with, and that's the problem that it's kind of chewing over and looking at from different angles, trying to make sense of, and does, you can't really fully make sense of it by the end, but it does kind of come to some sort of conclusion that there might still You might still be able to approach life with a sense of hope, even if this is why on fairy stories, his quotation is so funny, even if it seems like there's nothing that can possibly redeem or make worthy the horrible amount of pointless suffering that you see all around you. It's like Tolkien says, yes, look at all this suffering. Look at how pointless it seems. Look at how awful it is. And then, oh, look, somehow something good came out of all that. And you're yeah. like, wow, that's great. So first of all, that's not necessarily just even if we ended it there, it wouldn't be a simplistic message. But then he says, except, you know, you're still gonna, life's gonna go on. You're still going to have to deal with the suffering. And the suffering yeah. is still going to seem pointless, even as you can see some things coming out of it that are good to you, it might still be just anguish. And I was just very, kind of changed text slightly again, that, Moorcock would quote from On Fairy Stories, which is not part of Lord of the Rings. It's a well-known essay and it's fairly, you know, accessible, easy to find. Right. And it does, it is famous for being where Tolkien lays out, among other things, his narrative theory of the U catastrophe, which is frequently misunderstood and oversimplified and abused and made to mean things that Tolkien quite clearly did not mean when he was talking about it. But right. It's weird that Moorcock would go to the trouble of dragging this quote out of on fairy stories, which I guess I will assume that he actually read the whole essay. Yeah, but then to let's yeah, let's say that he didn't just like you know they didn't have Google in those days, so just went to like a. One of those quote dictionaries that they used to have where you could look up little tiny snippets of famous things that (laughs) famous people had said that were supposedly representative of their thoughts and opinions on a matter or just like were really snappy and looked good at the head of your essay or whatever. Let's say that he actually read on fairy stories. It's astonishing that you could get that deep into Tolkien's thoughts and his arguments and his explanations of his aesthetic goals and come away with this idea that he wants everything to be a happy ending, and that's why he goes against his own literary impulses. It's like it's almost the other way around. He gives <laughs> us the happy ending, but he can't leave it there. He has to go and write a whole, like, third tertiary ending where it's like, ah, oh, but things are still really, like, messed up for everyone. Sorry.
0: <laughs> right. Well, and that's that's why a lot of people find the the scouring of the Shire so jarring. It's like, why didn't we just get our happy ending and it was over? Yeah. Apparently, Moorcock missed that chapter (laughs) (laughs) because it's like it's staring you in the face. It's never that simple. And that is Tolkien's message. Even in The Hobbit, where it seems a lot more like a standard happy ending for everybody, Thorin dies on the page. Like, I mean, we see that happen and Bilbo is crushed over it. Like, Tolkien rarely gives us just a purely happy ending.
1: And then he comes home and they're selling his stuff off, which is kind of his own little mini- (laughs) It's Mini the shock. same thing. It's well, it's the it's the scouring of the shire in miniature. He comes home having had this adventure, and he finds that, oh look, my neighbors are just as venal and and self serving as I used to be. Ugh, gross. They're they're <laughs> never going to fully accept me again, are they? Hmm, good thing I got all this elvish money.
0: Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, so at this point, like, uh, there's a huge section where he just yeah. starts going off on other authors. And he doesn't really talk much about Tolkien after this point. Um, No. Did you have any other notes that we didn't already go over on this?
1: I, yeah, we have. So there's a paragraph. Writers like Tolkien, again, like who like Tolkien and like Tolkien in what way? Yeah. (laughs) Take you to the edge of the abyss and point out the excellent tea garden at the bottom. What? I didn't even
0: know what to make of that. Showing, yeah. I didn't even include that in my notes because I was like, I don't even know what to say in response to something that's so, it, A, it's meaningless. B, it's absurd. I, I mean, that line, I just read it, and I tried to think what he could possibly mean by that, and I couldn't come up with anything. And so I just didn't even bother.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very odd. I, I Again, I believe he's trying to make the claim that Tolkien includes – things that you would find in what Moorcock would probably consider successful fantasies or epics, the uncanny, the weird, the wonders and the horrors and everything, but he he cushions it somehow. And It's like, that is not at all my experience of reading Lord of the Rings. He tends to shove you right down into it. But uh, yeah, I, I couldn't really, again, I couldn't even figure out what the argument was being made. And then he does, he goes and gives a bunch of quotations from other authors that he considers
0: better in some. better
1: and it's hard again he's alternating rapidly back and forth between talking about their pros talking about their metaphors their style and how this one is superior to that one it's like okay like i can see how you would prefer you know i can see trends i can be like okay this one is it's a little bit more vivid a little bit more snappy than some of the other passages again i'm like you know maybe let's compare the books more fully side by side it's really hard to tell from just a paragraph of one versus a paragraph of the other what's a fair right. distinction here but he's so he spends a good deal of time talking about pro style but then snaps back to saying like talking about the morals basically of the story and how again by virtue of having looked at the style we are then supposed to assume that the themes are necessarily good or bad in the same way and it's just like it's just a alternating so rapidly between criticizing on so many different points that he never follows through on the arguments that he's presenting what arguments he even bothers to present instead of just leaving you to to come up with what you think he thinks
0: yeah well and <sighs> you know along that you know of all those different authors that he quotes from he he follows up one quotation by saying clearly this person is a better writer than tolkien it's like yes. you picked one paragraph compared it to two previous paragraphs and I'm reading them both, and I'm like, I still like Tolkien's better, and you <laughs> pick two that you think are really bad. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like he never – it's like he starts down a train of thought, and he never finishes it, and he just jumps and jumps and jumps and keeps jumping it from one thing to another like he's just on some kind of ADHD trip <laughs> where he just cannot settle down and make a coherent – start to finish argument of this is why tolkien's writing is bad because this 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 and here's examples and here's why that's bad he never sits down and does that he just kind of assumes like if he puts something out there and says this is horrible you're just supposed to agree with him it's like look man everybody's got their own taste if you don't like lord of the rings then that's fine but don't pretend you're engaging in literary criticism when all you're really doing is saying ugly yeah not really providing any meaningful commentary on it right
1: you can you can say that look this is this is not to my taste which we could be like okay um he is writing an essay presumably a persuasive essay so i assume that he's trying to persuade us that for if not wholly objective then at least for reasons that could be understood by a general audience um that his assessment is correct and that it's more than just a matter of taste that he can actually point out to superiority which is really hard to do if you're talking about just style you authors use different styles you can deploy them more or less skillfully they can be more or less emotive or evocative but you can't really it's hard to say that this is better than that well it's like better for what purpose and by what measure so if he wanted to make that argument that would be really interesting. I would probably enjoy reading about that. I I don't think Tolkien, I enjoy Lord of the Rings, obviously. Um, I don't think Tolkien's style is above critique all the time. I And I would be willing to look at other authors next to it and say, do they have any advantages or disadvantages? Are you, could we see how see how you could level critiques against one or the other based on comparing it to authors who are dealing with, I guess, purportedly similar themes and subjects. But that again, like you said, he never does that. He starts by talking about what appears to be a criticism of style, jumps to some sort of criticism of theme or moral or subject, alternating again rapidly between all of them. And then we'll go off on a two or three paragraph discussion of social and political matters that really yeah it's just he he's he's hoping that you will assume that Tolkien is a bad writer because he can make his what he perceives as his political stances seem distasteful yeah. instead of instead of taking what would what you would expect be the simpler and more honest route of if you actually think Tolkien is a bad writer on a certain metric then just write write that essay but you know <laughs>
0: Yeah, That's... <laughs> well, but even when even when he's criticizing on political grounds, he never makes a political argument either. No, nope, he nope. he just kind of jumps in there and you know attacks the what he perceives as Tolkien's political views or the Inklings' political views, mm-hmm. and he speaks about them in derogatory ways without ever actually engaging with the theory behind them. He just kind of assumes this is obviously bad. It's like, well, what if I disagree with your politics, Moorcock? I mean, like, yeah. what if I uh, agree with Tolkien?
1: Does that
0: mean that I should like his stuff? Or where does that. I, it's, yeah, should I
1: not like Robin McKinley because you like her and you don't think that people who like Tolkien could like Robin McKinley? Like.
0: Yeah, I don't. It's
1: very strange.
0: Yeah, and it's. it's
1: It's actually it's kind of I mean, if if I were being snarky, I would say, well, of course, once you get specific and make actual claims, you're opening yourself up to people, you know, evaluating those claims, (laughs) potentially finding logical weaknesses and then maybe refuting or at the very least failing to be persuaded by those claims. So it really is. It's a little bit of a Mark Antony moment where the artistry of this essay, if you take it not as an actual logical example of argumentation with evidence, right. but is just a very skillful suggestion that you come away from. You might be thinking like, oh, yeah, I mean, I never really thought of it that way. I guess he has some good points. Well, he never actually makes a point, but he makes it seem like he's made a bunch of them, which right. is it's it's and both... he's relying
0: on you to connect all the dots.
1: It's it's both very skillfully done and very kind of creepy when you realize what it is he's doing. At least it was kind of creepy for me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it's it's a style of writing that I find very disingenuous. It's like you know, if you're going to make an argument, make an argument, but don't just throw out stuff and then act as if you've made an argument because mm. the average person, I think, is not on guard enough to really be aware of when an argument has not been made. And therefore falls into the trap of thinking that Michael Moorcock has in fact made an argument and that that argument is good. And the reason they think the argument is good is because they're actually the one that made it in their own head because Moorcock forced them to do that. Yes. So what he's doing is a very insidious uh, method of basically getting you to argue for his position and therefore side with him because why would you side against yourself who made the argument? So it – yeah, like you said, it is really kind of creepy uh, if you think about yeah. it in those terms. So – but yeah, I mean and, – and even apart from that, like there's just so – and I think this is more of a function of the larger later version of the essay because I think the original shorter version was a little bit tighter. Mm-hmm. But even it, I think, had this problem where it just rambles so much because again he can't really stick to one thing he's got to keep jumping from one thing to another and mm. that's part of why the whole thing works is because he never finishes a sentence so to speak
1: yeah he never but, finishes a thought
0: right i mean he's got complete sentences i'm not saying right. his grammar's bad but, i know what you mean i was <laughs> yeah but for purposes of like what he's actually trying to do it's as if he never finishes the, the sentence and he leaves that little ellipsis there Mm-hmm. And forces you to fill it in, but he never finishes it himself. And then he jumps onto something else, and so you never feel like, if you're paying attention, you never feel like he ever says anything. It's, other than to just be like, "Uh, bad. This, uh, this better. This bad. It's, it's like bad. it's an it's a very emotivist form of writing. Very you really look at it
1: skillfully. Again, like it, it's kind of enjoyable to see the way that he can evoke certain tones and the way he builds from a sort of disinterested to kind of this peak of passion and then scales it back down and like he's he's play it's kind of like a musical performance you can see it go rising and falling and making use of course of his own methods that he critiqued earlier of causing the audience to feel something based on the way that you're writing um Tolkien I guess makes people feel comfortable Moorcock wants you to feel angry or appalled or <laughs> disgusted. Um and he does and he I think does a good job of hitting those emotional buttons for people. And if you're again just reading this casually or uncritically or if you're like me and you're just like, oh I've heard that this is an important essay and I should read it, but you're just reading it. You're not really Critically taking it apart. It. Yeah. 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 And again, if you maybe you ha you've read Lord of the Rings, but you've read more what other people have said about lord of the rings and maybe that's colored your own understanding of it then it's very easy to get swept up and swept along and feel at the end like he said something and he's made some good points and he you know you can't really answer make an answer to this argument well you can't make an answer to an arg- the argument because it's never he never made. made an argument he just gave you the sensation of an argument being made yeah can we is that I would say that he redeems himself slightly in the last paragraph. And I think I think the it's maybe worth pointing out because otherwise it does seem like why this level of vitriol right. against someone whose writing is, you have to admit, is um terribly influential in the genre in which Moorcock is working.
0: So much so that there are literal – and then Moorcock points this out and criticizes the fact that there are people who basically just copy Tolkien. (laughs) That's how influential Tolkien is.
1: Yeah, and I mean I think the – again, we're looking at the updated version that was written. has to have been in the 2000s because he makes references to Harry Potter. Right. Which I thought was kind of funny in itself. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) We won't go there though. We won't
1: go there. Uh, Yeah, for many reasons I thought it was funny. but. He when he wrote this originally, I believe it was the 70s, wasn't it?
0: I think so. Yeah,
1: And and this was admittedly kind of a rough time for uh, I don't want to say literature in general, but but especially for, quote, genre fiction and for the fantasy genre. And you'd be looking the kinds of books and, and magazines that Moorcock would have had to have been publishing in. And he talks about the anthologies that are being put together at this point. It was very much um, a world in which the people who could imitate Tolkien most unoriginally, I guess, were the ones that frequently met with the most commercial reward. So he, he mentions that he talks about how the writers who most slavishly imitate Tolkien seem to be using English as a rather inexpertly learned second language. So many of them are unbelievably bad that they defy description and are scarcely worth listing individually. He talks about Terry Pratchett, who is an excellent author, being the only Terry in Fantasyland who is able to write a decent complex sentence, so I I won't name (laughs) names, but... I have definitely felt this frustration that he's feeling reading the so-called classics of the late half of the 20th century in the fantasy genre and just being like, this is like insultingly, (laughs) this is a parody of Lord of the Rings. It's not even like, oh, inspired by Lord of the Rings. It's just, no, they're just, it's a blatant cash grab. And it is, it's kind of repulsive. And I think he, he says that, you know, that these writers are rewarded with the lavish lifestyles of the most successful horrors is unsurprising. So. I believe there is additionally a little bit of bitterness here in that this style that people would have called Tolkienian, but may in fact have had very little to do with like, you know, what's actually going on in Lord of the Rings. Right. um, That this was being lionized as the only way to write successful fantasy. And Moorcock is quite, I think, understandably chafing against that and resentful of that. And he cares about writing, obviously, and he wants to do kind of his own thing with it and to take the fantasy genre in a different direction that has more energy and more craft and skill. I think the problem here is that he places the blame on Tolkien and specifically (laughs) on the politics of, again, quote, that kind of writer. That's the problem. It's like, well, that's maybe a different problem than just the fact that Bad cliche books sell, and they happen to be selling re- really well at this period in time. Like he had no way of foreseeing the the sort of fantasy renaissance of the late nineties through the mid two thousands. So yeah, I so I can I can see that there is kind of an attempt at an argument in the last like couple paragraphs that actually does seem to have some merit, and I think explains some of the vitriol more effectively than actually Moorcock's own arguments do, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's
1: just it's just an excuse the rest of the essay
0: right i mean the rest of the essay is just to the extent that it may be motivated by that it's like you said aimed at entirely the wrong target it's like yes you know that that is a function of virtually every realm of artistic endeavor something is wildly successful lots of people try to imitate it and most of them do it badly
1: yes i, and- I mean
0: but that doesn't mean the original wasn't good at i mean
1: it's it's irrelevant the original could be good or bad or just kind of normal but he again that's he he takes it quite personally i
0: think (laughs) it does seem like it
1: and he draws some conclusions that i think are more gratifying to his own injured ego and non-literary opinions let's say than an actual cool-headed critical examination of why this should be the case and what the actual effects are yeah (sighs) disappointing
0: (laughs) yeah well and that's the thing you know i've never i've never read a criticism of tolkien that actually held water uh and it moorcock is maybe the most extreme example of this um but you know this is kind of why we're doing this series is so many of the critics of tolkien as tolkien himself points out don't seem to have actually read tolkien at least not very carefully no um but with that said uh we've been going for a good while now so we better haul it um <laughs> but i will link not only to the epic poo essay itself I'm also going to link to that video that you referenced earlier about the Shire and how it's really not the idyllic paradise that we all think it is. Oh, boy. Because that, that is a very – and let me just say, everybody, don't engage in flame wars because you th- – I mean, like, listen to the whole thing before you criticize that video I... because it's a very well-thought-out video – and it actually makes a lot of really good points. I don't necessarily agree with every point she makes but she certainly makes a lot of good ones and it it does come to a very deep issue that's being touched on here by Moorcock and so if you can understand where Tolkien is really coming from with his portrayal of the Shire, you'll understand why Moorcock is so missing the boat on his criticism of Tolkien. So it's you know, well worth understanding what's really going on there. And Girl Next Gondor does a very good job of explaining what's going on there yes. in ways My, that Moorcock by, does not understand.
1: By by Tolkien's own claim and measure, too, at certain points. That's the other thing that I right I, I ruffled several feathers, which I was actually kind of intending to do and looking forward to. But uh, the number of people who were just like seemed mortally offended that I would suggest that Tolkien himself... Didn't think the Shire was a perfect paradise. When I cite, I think four or five points where he says literally just that. I don't think the Shire is perfect. I don't think it's something that should be uncritically emulated. I think that hobbits have real serious social problems that the book is kind of about them coming to grips with in the end. And like Tolkien himself said it, and yeah. and everyone else says no, that's not actually what Tolkien meant. That's that's not.
0: Well, and and the one that comes to mind to me too is i'm I'm sure a lot of these people are going to say tolkien said i'm a hobbit in all but size and i'm Mm going to turn around and say yes he also said he's most like faramir except for physical courage yes tolkien recognized he himself had weaknesses so it's not like tolkien saw himself as some ideal person either so
1: i would say if anything he probably never tends to be more self-deprecating than he ought to be
0: oh absolutely Uh, um And, you know, I mean, he had a lot of his own kinds of depression and anxieties and things that we're not going to psychoanalyze the man. But, you know, let just let that be a context for, you know, when you watch her video on the (laughs) Shire, don't take it as a personal attack on the fact that you would love to live in the Shire. I'd love to live in the Shire, too. Tolkien probably would have loved to live in the Shire. Almost certainly. But not for the reason that the society itself was a not utopia. because it's
1: perfect, yes, <laughs> right. no place is perfect to to say that Tolkien thinks any place and any society is perfect is again, as we just saw, that's to do a grave disservice to the work he actually does to make things way more complex than they even need to be, um, right. because he is very attuned to the good and the bad sides of almost any trait and yeah. and I think the fact that you know. A lot of people don't see that is due to the fact that they have a preconceived notion about what Tolkien is writing about. So then when they're actually reading Tolkien, they're blind to the rather subtle hints that he is putting in um, and <laughs> and to his craft. And so then you walk away from Lord of the Rings thinking this is a straightforward adventure fantasy novel when it's at every turn, almost anything but.
0: Right. <sighs> so with that said, we will leave it here. Um probably going to be looking to do at least one more of these videos in the future won't say on what just now yeah. but we'll try to try to do at least one more of these so be on the lookout for that in some time in the future not going to make promises <laughs> uh with that said if you have not subscribed to girl next gondor please do she's got really great content please subscribe to this channel if you want to catch more of my stuff and we will see you the next time Good. namadie